Game begin. Welcome to Spike Colony uh, with uh, the number one deck designer in the world, special guest Sam Black, and I am Lanny Huang, the number two deck designer in the world. And I don't I know if am, it, that's I'm, slipped. I'm not sure if it's slipped because of. of and I'm here with Michael Michael J. But Flores. Sam's distance increased last week. <laughs> if, if there was a one-two, he, he was like, "Oh, one-two by fifteen feet." Now it's one-two by fifteen miles. Jo- joining like, the that's two, generous to you. Jo- joining the two best deck designers in the world is a deck designer and the chooser of deck designers in the world, Michael J. Flores. Uh, Sam, welcome to Spy Colony. Um, I just want to share that this is an exciting call for me. I have three Magic the Gathering heroes. They are Michael J. Flores, uh, Gabriel Nassif, and Samuel H. Black. So this is an absolute pleasure. And uh, wow, what a day! Land tax is banned. Uh, but first, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. Did you see if uh, Nasif was available? <laughs> I've been trying to like I drop into Nasif's stream every now and then. I'm just like, hey, so pre-modern. Did, did you like Nasif before or after we played? Because Sam, you might not know this story, but um, when Lanny and I met, we played in a PTQ, and I really wanted to play Nasif's blue-red. Uh, this is 2019 uh, Eldritch Standard. Yeah, I was just like, I had these dreams of having a Niv-Mizzet in play and then putting an Embercleave on it. I'm like, my sideboard strategy is going to be four Niv-Mizzet, four Embercleave, but I can't lose. That's my thought process. So I call up Nassif, and I'm like, Nassif, what do you think about this stuff? And Nassif looks at it, and he goes, just play blue-green. <laughs> that was his answer. I'm like, that's your answer? And, then, and at the time, people were like, oh, blue-green can't beat John. So I just figured out how to beat John. Uh, and so I played blue green and I didn't, you know, I think I lost one game the entire PTQ, so it was super boring. Uh, but Lanny was playing uh, Nassif's deck. When I, when I met Michael J the very yeah. first time was round one yeah. of a PTQ. I was playing blue red flash against blue green flash. And uh, Michael J afterwards was just like, yeah, well, you know, I messaged Nassif and he told me even he wouldn't play <laughs> blue red flash. And I'm just like, thank you. Thank you for that. I didn't realize that I was one of his heroes. You know, invoking the name of one of his other heroes. Um, uh, but then, you know, good guys won, bad guys died. It was uh, That's how the stories are supposed to go. Uh, yeah, Nassif uh, has been, I've, I've been a fan. I mean, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about my heroes. Um, Michael J., you're my hero because, uh, you know, I read all your articles. You had the Hawaiian t-shirt on the mothership. Um, Nassif had that uh, crazy run where he was just getting second place in everything right when I was starting on Magic. And... I was like a Francophile as uh, a preteen. Like I just liked France and he was like a French player. So I, I just kind of latched onto him. And I was like, this guy rules. Uh, <laughs> Sam, I first came into contact with your content. I think I was listening to Pro Points podcast with uh, Sigi and PV. And uh, I think uh, you, you you did the Ravnica Legends like clear the mind uh, like 19 and one record. Yeah. So uh, that was just like the coolest thing ever. And then you kind of followed it up with uh, really showing the people how to play limited uh, by opening up drafting archetypes and really just like showing your process. Um, and I just think that, you know, you're one of the most uh, creative people playing magic. And I think approaching with an angle of creativity is just like very exciting and we all love to see it. So uh, really, I, welcome to the cast. How are I think you doing? It's interesting that you like Sam for creativity. I like Sam for not creativity. So like I was a really bad midnight hunt drafter, like really bad. Like I couldn't win at FNM. Right. And then like Sam just printed a spreadsheet and then I had the highest midnight hunt win rate on all of Magic Magic Arena for like the next seven seasons. I was like, all I did was copy whatever he did, and I had like a ninety three percent win rate, and I never lost ever again. And uh, it was like it was the boringest thing ever. 
never lost. Sam, was the spreadsheet just uh, 17 lands data? You can tell me. What? That's yeah, what no, Sam, it was literally just I put 17 lands data into a different, like, differently organized spreadsheet. Yeah, but I could yep. read Sam's thing. If it was, it's actually not true because Sam tiered them into like I think there were like five columns, and then that the was part of the organization. Yeah, it was ordered in the columns. Yeah. So I just knew which card to draft in which order, right? Versus I try to keep two screens open and look at like the 17s. It's just too hard for me. I don't know how to do this. So Sam Sam, Sam made the 17 lands at a, in a printable format. <laughs> he just made it so that you could print it out instead of having it on a second computer monitor. And that <laughs> unlocked. If you're alleging that if I knew how to sort a spreadsheet that I would be good at other limited formats, there is no evidence that would that would possibly lead you to that direction. In my in my, you know, one rat test n equals one sort of situation, I got a spreadsheet from Sam Black, never lost another match of Midnight Hunt. Right? That's it. I wait for Midnight Hunt to be back on Quick Draft so I can get my mythic rating back. Takes about seven drafts. <laughs> And right. I go about my business. All right. Uh, so Sam has really unlocked uh, Michael J's uh, arena win rate. Uh, he's really unlocked all of our arena win rates. Uh, I think I, you know, really feasted on drafting archetypes when I was making good runs in Kamigawa and Adventures in Forgotten Realms. Uh, but beyond that, every Wait. single time you show up to play Constructed, it just seems like uh, you're like you just see something that other people don't, and every single time you play pre-modern, uh, it just seems that uh, well, uh, land tax and scroll rack is broken. But pause. You guys are both limited arena number one players. No, that you've been exaggerating that for a long time. I peaked at like top ten, but I've never made number one. Oh, I think I made one at some point for a little while. No, you definitely not- did because a bunch of my barns were like Sam's number one, and he kept playing. <laughs> so like I'm, if I get to like top 100, I just stop playing. Like last month, I got to like 33, and then when I checked back in, I was like 98. So I, I think I should have started playing again at some point. <laughs> but I, I never play after I'm top 100. Sure. All right, Sam. Uh, for for those who don't know, please tell us about yourself. Uh, we make a joke on this podcast that uh, you know Michael J has a long list of accomplishments that you should just look up. But we would love to hear some of uh, you know your your favorite things about yourself. <laughs> Uh, no because you actually do have a long list of accomplishments. So, I once won a car. <laughs> that was your coming out tournament, right? That was uh, New York World Championships 2007, right? Yeah, which is a tournament that I didn't play in. But you came to New York. Yes. That also has one of my favorite stories. That, that Oh? But you weren't. Yeah, so, um, so I roll up uh, Friday... Uh, and the top eight's going to get announced, right? So it's, I'm hanging out with Herb Berholtz, and uh, one of Lanny's uh, heroes, Gabriel Nassif, is going to make top eight, and just my buddy, Patrick Shapen, is also going to make top eight, and they, they uh, played the, the Storm Dragon deck, right? And so this is cool. Um, and so we go to dinner, right? And, um, I mean, a bunch of things happened at dinner, so, like, Chapin and Nassif ordered wine, and like Nassif is like ordering the wine because he's French, so I guess he knows about stuff like that. At one point, when the bill comes, I went to reach for my pocket. Herbert Holt smacks my hand so fast, he's like, Don't you dare. And I'm like, Why? He's like, Those DIs just made top eight of the Pro Tour. I don't want any implication that I should be taking my wallet out. <laughs> <laughs> so he just, boom, he like, he knew. I, I literally am great, great, but the really the great thing is. You know, we're like 75% of the way through the dinner. You know, just everyone's having a great time. Two of our two of our people at our table have just made top eight. 
and a young woman walks up to the table. Oh no! She's like, oh, starts talking, and, and she's like, oh, I, I think I like know you from somewhere. Blah blah blah. And so Patrick starts eloquently going like, oh yeah, well we're here in New York City to play in the World Championships of Magic Gathering. Gabriel and I, and he calls, calls him Gabriel. Gabriel and I have just made topic. The girl looks over at me. She's like, are you Mike Flores? Like <laughs> in the middle of Chapin's speech, and I was just like, ah. This is not a real story. Nice top eight, brothers. Oh, no, no, no. This is a well-documented real story. <laughs> I believe it. All right. So Sam was also in New York. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, tell us about yourself, please. <laughs> well, I mean, so my story from that tournament is uh, I was there to just, like, play side events because there was this thing where there were a bunch of side events that were marked room, and if you won one of them, you could play in a 32-person tournament on Sunday to win an automobile. And um, that sounded pretty good. So uh, I borrowed like a red-green snow deck from someone in standard and won some standard tournament with it. And then I was trying to decide what I should play in this standard tournament that won the car, because like that mattered a little bit more than the qualifier for it. And so... Um, I wasn't like very well connected uh, at this point, um, but you know we were at Worlds, and um, I knew Bob Mahar because he's uh, local, and so um, I told like I talked to him, told him I qualified for this thing, and uh, asked what he thought I should play, and he told me about how Dragonstorm was the breakout deck of Worlds, and I should definitely play it, and. I thanked him for the advice and decided to play a Goblins deck that I played at States that I didn't do very well with. <laughs> and uh, I believe later Bob heard that I did that and said he hoped that I at least had Thoughtseize in my sideboard, which I did. <laughs> and then I, uh, yeah, then I won a tournament with a bunch of unplayable limited cards. Um, and what happened that, to the car? Uh, it was a thing that I could pick up in the future from New York, uh, or I could take cash instead. And I had recently purchased a car, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, I got some cash. Nice. So, um, that world's uh, day three was legacy, right? That's where all the rest of my dual lands went. I don't know who has them at this point. <laughs> Just loaded out cards for that day three. Dual lands weren't worth uh, than what they are now, apparently. Also, I didn't pay very good attention. But, Sam, you're underplaying later that year. Didn't you become, like, the fairies assassin? Like, straight up the world's fairies assassin? Maybe second well, only to PV? Well, Akira Asahara and uh, um, Yuta Takahashi were also very good with fairies. Um, also, I would say that when I played against... Masashi Oiso in Worlds in the Fairy Mirror, he taught me some lessons and it was very clear that he knew what was going on better than I did. <laughs> um, but I did have a pretty good run with fairies, but that was actually just over a year later because the next, or well, maybe under a year, so Probably that was World 2007, I uh, finished second in Nationals 2008 playing Adrian Sullivan's Green Black Elf deck. Um, and then started playing fairies after that sometime. Um, like, I think I only played fairies, like, a, 
in the post-rotation rather than pre-rotation fairies era. Um, but yeah, I, I did end up doing reasonably with fairies later on. Reasonably being would be like a world-class reputation for anybody who's just not... You know, I just, I just, <laughs> Uh, I, I think guess Elisa was better than me in the mirror. I think we're like, <laughs> like experiencing like the two, like the two kind, like the opposite ends of the range of humility that you can have in a person. <laughs> where Sam Black might be the most humble person <laughs> that plays Magic, and Michael J. may or may not be the least. Um, I mean, Sam, I'm, I'm trying to entertain our fans. It's, 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 I'm it's so, uh, sorry if that offends It's you. a foregone conclusion uh, that Sam's a, uh, a a monster. Uh, he has at least proven it in the pre-modern streets, and I'd love to talk about pre-modern. So, <clears throat> uh, Sam Black, of course, broke the news to me <laughs> that Lantax was banned. We uh, were about to record with him, and he messaged me on Discord, and he's like, well, guess we're probably not going to talk about my deck. <laughs> We should still um, talk about the deck. It's still important. I, I didn't say we wouldn't talk about the deck. Yeah, I we would change topics. There was probably a change of topics. I figured we should probably discuss the post land tax era in addition to the where the yeah in addition to the land tax era. Yeah. Okay. Um. And this is great. So what the uh, I want to set the stage here. Um. So if you haven't been following along. Uh, Sam Black uh, won the Misty Mountain Spring Cup with uh, sort of what became his signature deck over the course of a few tournaments, uh, which was a tax rack deck uh, that just leveraged Counterspell and Foil, one with Spontaneous Generation. It was Gush honed, and Foil, I think. Yeah, Gush the, and Foil. Yeah. And Counterspell. The, counterspell. The, Gush Foil, Counterspell, Blessing, uh, just sort of a card advantage control deck that uh, used tax rack. Uh, please don't call it Parfait. Um, and uh, this was uh, just really cool because um, I think a lot of people assume that uh, Sam Black spent a lot of time in the lab with this deck. And what actually happened was he built, you know, the first iteration. <laughs> that was the first draft. Which was, no, 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 it wasn't. Michael, you're also uh, misled. So Sam started playing the deck uh, sort of uh, around last year uh, and then really only played it at Misty Mountain large scale tournaments, correct? Uh. Every now and then there'd be like a physical playtest at Misty, like I did a couple of those, um, but uh, I never played it, I never put it together online, um, and generally don't play a large number of games of pre-modern. Right. Um, so, you know, uh, per your articles, it was kind of like, um, or uh, actually per all things considered with uh, Mano, you were basically like, yeah, you know, I lost to this uh, this deck uh, and then changed my deck so that I couldn't lose to that deck anymore and you did that over a few tournaments and were rewarded with a win uh, back uh, here on July 1st we had the second annual uh, Midwest Pre-Modern Championship hosted at Missy Mountain Games uh, and you decided the night before uh, one, everybody was going to try to defeat your deck so you should probably not play that deck and two, let's just have some fun and, and either play uh Blue white tax rack <laughs> dreadnought or play uh, tax rack uh, anarid brush hopper. Um, uh, you went with the dreadnought deck and you you won every match that you've ever played with it. Uh, it was stunning to watch on camera. I highly suggest you watch coverage. Um, and then your resulting uh, attitude with this was, of course, uh, something should go uh, in the format. Um, uh, and uh, well, something did. But uh, so we're we're here now. So. Uh, you know, I don't really want to rehash too much of what's out there. Uh, I think the question 
on people's minds is like how like how'd you do it like what was (laughs) like (laughs) i i actually think you jumped way too far ahead i think we should talk about sam stack for a second i'm pretty keyed into the pre-modern community and i don't understand how the deck works just, Fair enough. Just okay. as an example. Okay, okay. give us give us. Give so us like the... I literally don't understand how the deck works. Give I us understand the one with the like one. so the deck is like Mock Simon, Land Tax, Scroll Rack, Enlightened Tutor, Swords of Plus Shares, one Sylvan Library, one Oath of Druids, one Ivory Tower. That's like most of the engine of one of the two kind of monster decks of the format. Then on the other hand, it has four Phyrexian Dreadnought, four Vision Charm, three Stifle. Uh, and then I guess if you're Sam Black, Gush and Foil count as parfait cards. Right, but like if you're not Sam Black, they count as um, as Stifle Knot cards. The thing that I really love about Sam's deck is the presence of Mox Diamond. Lets him, you know, go to the dealer the way that I do with Lotus Petal. And you've often been like, everyone would play Lotus Petal if they could draw Lotus Petal like you do, right? But so, but Mox Diamond lets Sam do that. The thing I don't get is rather than a fourth Stifle, right, or like the fourth of a lot of things that could be in the deck, Sam just plays one Oath of Druids. And I don't get it, right? The only thing you could oath for is Phyrexian Dreadnought. Like, right. Yeah. Most decks are like, I'm going to get an Ancestor's Chosen, or I'm going to get a Charred Phoenix, and I'm going to lock down the bet. You're just like, that's why oath decks are bad. Those creatures suck. Dreadnought's good. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Sam, give us the 101s on your deck. You can, of course, read all about this on, it was uh, Hipsters, right? That you yeah. wrote about? Yeah. So Hipsters the Coast, Sam Black has an article called Breaking Pre-Modern. Uh, talks about the process for building the deck, but let's go ahead and run down the uh, quick primer. Yeah. So, I mean, basically, I was looking, so I bought some Dreadnoughts, largely uh, as a hedge in case land tax was banned so that I would have, like, a different good deck. Uh, I bought them at the same time that I bought uh, English Legends land taxes. So I was like, if it's not banned, I can play nice land taxes. If it is banned, at least I have these Dreadnoughts. Um, And then, like, I had some Dreadnoughts to play with, so I was like, I wonder what I can do with these things. Um, And I had the idea for, like, a blue-green Gaia's Blessing deck that uh, would play um, greater good with Dreadnought so you can draw 12 cards and then play Oath so that you can Oath in to draw 12 cards. And then I put white in it because Sword Splashers is legal and so I want it in all of my decks. And um, then I tried playing with that deck and uh, that deck had Petal and Diamond because I wanted to cast my greater goods early so that I could start drawing cards. And uh, playing with that deck, uh, fast Dreadnoughts were good, greater good underperformed, and I had Enlightened Tutor to like set up uh, this whole like Oath greater good Dreadnought thing, and it was clear that I wanted to be able to Enlighten Tutor for Lantax Scroll Rack. Um, and so I was like, all right, some of this like Oath into Dreadnought stuff is actually pretty good, but a lot of this deck is just not better than the Tax Rack engine. So I should just go back to the drawing board on this one. Um, but it w- served as proof of concept about Oath into Dreadnought is just like a thing that works because that you, when you play like Dreadnought with Vision Charm and Stifle, you have like more access to Vision Charm and Stifle than Dreadnought because it's just a greater number of cards. And um, 
So like you get to play Oath as your like additional Dreadnought half of the combo, and then you just like Oath into Dreadnought and keep it. And then if your opponent answers it, it's not that hard to have another blue card, and you just Oath into another Dreadnought. Um, and then like with the Greater Good deck, I was like, oh, and if I don't have a blue card, I can just sack my Dreadnought and draw twelve, and that's at least as good. Um, and if I'm playing against Burn then plow is like another thing that I can do when I oath into a dreadnought. I can just gain 12. Um, and so, uh, yeah, but basically I saw that, you know, oath into dreadnought is just a functional thing to do. Um, and uh, that like having dreadnought stuff was good and having other card wrench and stuff was worse than uh, the engine, the, the tax rack engine. So uh, then I was like looking at how to change my tax rack deck. And I was like, all right, these cards are locked in stone. Uh, how many slots does that leave me with? Not a lot. How many slots would I need for this like uh, Dreadnought package? Oh, actually, that's about the same as the number of slots that are not locked in stone in my deck. Uh, what if I just cut all of my like non-essential like control stuff and bullets? for the Dreadnought package, and I was like, okay, how does that change my, like, matchup spread? Well, like, I lose, you know, Humility and Zurin Orb and, like, some anti-aggro cards, but my understanding is that most of the aggro decks are pretty bad against turn one or two Dreadnought, so I think I'm going to, like, net additional percentage against uh, calculating, calculating everyone, so I guess this is a good change. And then I was like, okay, but all of this was motivated by a desire to not lose to Landstill. And my understanding is that, like, I'm afraid of Landstill's ability to beat my land tax deck. Or, uh, yeah, and I'm afraid. And my understanding is that Landstill is supposed to be good against Dreadnought. So, like, does it actually make any sense to jam two decks that Landstill is good against into one deck and expect that I'll magically be better against Landstill? I think the answer is actually yes, because I think that um, Taxrack's problem is giving Landstill too much time, and uh, Dreadnought's problem is being uh, like too disruptible. And if you just have a really good card draw engine to keep threatening with them with Dreadnoughts, you probably kill them. Yeah. But that was all theory, and I was worried that it might not play out that way. So just to be sure. I put three brain freezes in my sideboard and figured I could board out my dreadnoughts and just charm, charm, freeze, freeze them, and I couldn't ever lose a game with that plan. Right, and um, I wanted to I, I wanted to point out that I think it's really uh, it, like a lot of people had that comment. They're like, if Sam's trying to be Landstill, why is he playing two decks that lose to Landstill? It's like one of the things that happens when you have land tax in play is Landstill can't develop their mana, and one of the main main ways that Landstill beats Blue White Dreadnought is by having a mana advantage, just playing a land every turn, drawing extra cards off Landstill. So you kind of cut that off. Uh, and I guess while we're on the topic, is that kind of what played out in round five when you played um, against Alec Esther on Landstill? Uh. Yeah, I think that's basically how it went. I, I don't remember any details super well, but I do remember. I don't. I also don't remember the match being particularly difficult. Right. Um, yeah, the three brain freeze seems like a pretty good way to. And you also have a red elemental blast. That's cute. Yeah. Um, the red blast was great. Um. So. 
Yeah. Uh, I think... Um, so, it came to my attention last week when I was uh, having a discussion with a very skilled Eternal player who I won't name uh, about... Um, he, he mentioned that he... Uh, like casually followed pre-modern and like saw that I'd like done well and that he plays a little bit with like a friend of his who just like proxies up a bunch of decks or something and um, we were having a conversation about like to what extent you know me winning with these decks is like you know deck versus pilot and it's like very hard to like disentangle but like every now and then I wonder about like why no one else plays my deck and um i played your people... gushland still deck hmm? i played your gushland still deck once uh, okay. gush gush you're, you're, sorry uh Lanny yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah i played it yeah i won the tournament and i beat lanny <laughs> but those are, those are the things that i was setting out to do sure both of, the, both of those conditions uh no so uh i i did a little bit of coaching with sam in preparation for the pre-modern champs and sam was like are you worried about my deck and i told him i was like look nobody plays your deck <laughs> Um, I don't know why they just don't. And deck? I was rewarded. <laughs> I was rewarded by um, uh, playing uh, against Sam's deck in my win and or draw and in match rather. Uh, and um, I guess I'll tell you about that really quick, Sam. Uh, so uh, I played Oath Parfait, and uh, I queued into your deck on round eight, which was the last round. Uh, I needed a draw or better to get in. My opponent couldn't draw in. Um, so, uh, we shuffled up and he opened on, you know, islands and, and tax stuff. And, uh, we played a 50 minute game one that didn't conclude where neither of us, uh, had any lands in play and neither of us triggered land tax, um, at all. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a great moment for me because I made top eight and, um, I proved that I could at least not complete game one versus your deck. <laughs> Um, this was a problem. I think that's the best outcome for you in that matchup. Absolutely, you're absolutely right. Um, I do think that um, I at least had thought about what I was going to do in the matchup, thanks to uh, playing against Michael at the um, at the at the event we played. I also played Oath Parfait uh, into Mike, and we kind of just had some discussions about it, where he was like, "Well, Counterspell and Duress kind of like both cancel each other out. So what's going on?" And then he kind of made the misplay of playing out of planes, uh, which I explained to him. I was like, you can't pick up the planes, but you can pick up your islands. So just don't ever play a planes I, in this matchup. Um, I actually don't think the matchup is that bad. I mean, I certainly think that the Gush Foil Counterspell version has an advantage. But I think that the advantage that I had against Lanny was mostly that I had gone first. I deployed multiple land taxes with zero land play before he took his first turn. Yeah, I mean, right. it's super, so, like, this is one of the reasons why I actually didn't, I mean, it was complicated, I, like, I, it's okay that tax is banned, but one really interesting thing about that matchup really is, like, okay, well, if neither player is going to trigger land tax, then both players draw one card a turn, like, who, you know, whose deck doing what thing uh, is the most important, and actually the most important part about the matchup that I played against the deck in my drawing in was uh, my opponent had Phyrexian Furnace, and I did not. And so my deck was finite and his was not. Um, but the, the way that I forced the draw was uh, he had mistakenly uh, not kept two blessings in his deck at all times. So he was left with two blessings in the yard and I was able to duress Tormod's Crypt him and make his deck finite. And it was at that point that um, effectively neither of us could win. Um, oh, you could have won. 
yeah, I could have. Yeah, like, I could. He he I, played uh, he played like hella uh, tentatively. Like I I think his the game was winnable from his side, but yeah, yeah, he there played were, too tentatively. Yeah, but so, it doesn't matter because we didn't have enough time to finish. Yeah. Um, but this is neither here nor there because we're talking about two decks that aren't legal in the format. <laughs> um, right. so the one time that I played against like the Oath version, I think was like before it was normal to play duress or at least not multiple duress's main. Right. And I just kind of like let my opponent do whatever he wanted and it just didn't matter because I could disrupt his graveyard and he couldn't disrupt mine meaningfully. Or I could stop him from disrupting mine. Exactly. That's that's just like the biggest uh, the biggest angle. Um, but I want to uh, kind of talk um, a little bit um, amorphous. Like I, I want to kind of move on because I do think that thanks to the fact that nobody can play any of Sam's decks anymore. Um, I, I want to talk about like your view of uh, like, I guess kind of like the nature of the format, what you think about when approaching it. I know that you play this mostly for fun. You're really not out there. You're not ready to fly out here and battle us, uh, which we're heartbroken by, but uh, is acceptable. Um, uh, so, you know, granted, you know, because creativity and the, the inspiration and all that stuff i'm really inspired so what what's kind of um you know your approach what are your observations and what are like the things that you know you want to try to break it once more my approach to pre-modern is very similar to my approach to modern while i was playing lantern um my take on lantern was that at the time it was the best mox opal deck and mox opal was the best card in modern uh, my take on pre-modern is that Mox Diamond is legal, and so I just want to play the best Mox Diamond deck, because I think Mox Diamond is head and shoulders above the other cards in the format. Um, I think that Mox Diamond both gives you, like, more mana faster and fixes the color mana issue that, like, makes multicolored decks without Diamond more or less unplayable. Um, so... Uh, obviously, Lan Mox Diamond was incredible in every way with land tax, but I still think uh, Mox Diamond is like the best even without land tax. Um, I think uh, Gush in particular is um, a great uh, friend of uh, Mox Diamond. Um, I think you know the the fact that I view like the thing that's going on in uh like um tax rack is we're just a mox diamond deck is part of why i see gush uh as an essential part of that deck and then the fact that i see gush as an essential part of that deck is why i see foil as an essential part of that deck um so that's kind of just like where i'm coming from like it was literally just like Step one is I want to play Mox Diamond. Step two, Land Tax is the best thing with Mox Diamond. Step three, if I'm playing Land Tax, I have to play Scroll Rack. Step four, if I'm playing Land Tax and Scroll Rack, I have to play Enlightened Tutor. Step five, if I'm playing Enlightened Tutor, I have White Mana in my deck, so I have to play Swords of Plowshares. Um, step six, I'm still a Mox Diamond deck, so I need Gush. Step seven, I have Gush, so I need Foil. And then step eight, I guess Dreadnought's like the best threat, and if I <laughs> put Dreadnought in my deck, I can kill people and my curve stops at two. Uh, two is a good curve topper. 
<laughs> so that's a great curve top. So what's wow. um so what about your other back of the napkin decks? Because you share these on your Discord, the Challenging Assumptions Discord with Sam Black. You can find probably a link in your t- Twitter bio or something like that. Yeah, um, that's where you can yeah. find one. Uh, and you've shared a couple back of the napkin decks, including one of my favorites, uh, which also can't close a match, the Domain Control deck, um, <laughs> as well as like a, a you know a spicy Psychotog deck. Every now and then you've got some some scribbles that don't contain Mox Diamond. So. Um, where, where, you know, do you, do you have any interest in kind of p- pulling on well, those threads more? So I kind of lied about my process. Um, cause there's, I, I touched, I touched on every card in my deck, except the most important one, which is Gaia's Blessing. Uh, the reason I paid any attention to the format at all, uh, is actually that, uh, Michael J tweeted a, uh, blue green guy's blessing deck with a bunch of powder kegs and nonsense. And he agrees it's nonsense. Like, it's not oh, that good. <laughs> this is a format where you can play guy's blessing. I guess I should look into it. Um, I'm glad to have roped you in. Uh, the, the, the land tax lovers in the format are sad that I roped you. In. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I guess like, you know, from a strategic, how do I win? Uh, framing the process that I walked through about how I choose which cards are in my deck was accurate. From a love of the game, what am I doing here perspective, level zero is, so there are three guys' blessings in my deck. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Joy. Yeah, those those three guys' blessings, I went ahead and uh, so I've been playing uh, your domain control list, uh, you know, it just says something that I've got in the box and I played it at one of our meetups and yeah, uh, the haunting echoes. Lanny so grumpy. <laughs> he was grumpy all night. He was grumpy the whole week, actually. I was like, I just couldn't like I had complete control. And I was like, I couldn't find my Haunting Echoes. I added one Bayloth, as you might recall. I like couldn't find like my win condition. Like I'd be like, okay, Bayloth, and they're like, I'll plow it. I'm like, okay, I'll see you in like 20 turns, Bayloth. <laughs> like it was really bad. Um, but uh, that I mean, that deck is super cool. Like Allied Strategies for five um, is awesome. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess <clears throat> like it's just sort of interesting because I think uh, a lot of like what we see you doing is that you you don't like I, I guess this is the question do you think that if something's established in the format um like you know this is like the good deck or or whatever like the tier one deck um do you think that that is true and difficult to dispute like if you just take some you know whatever contemporary format where it's just like pioneer and you're like just like whatever mono green or red black like this is the best deck like when you go ahead and choose not to play those decks, is your statement more about like, I think that I have a better deck than that? Or is it like a, like, you know, rogue, like whatever. Cause I think, you know, what your approach to pre-modern thus far has been like, people don't know what the best deck is. Sam's deck is the best deck. Um, whereas I think most people don't think of, think about that way in formats. They, they tend to accept that tier one is tier one and they're just looking for angles. Yeah, so I tend to think that, like, in deeply explored post-Pro Tour formats, Tier 1 is usually correct. Uh, In formats that large numbers of pros haven't worked together to try to solve, no one has any idea what's happening. Right. Right. Um, and, and so you'll bring that heat to 
CEDH and uh, <laughs> I guess Legacy too. No pros play Legacy, yeah. But uh, yeah. Uh, so, but that said, you'll still bring, uh, you'll still show up to a standard tournament, right? The standard RC uh, with a deck of your own design. So, you know, was gas. What's yeah? What's kind of like you know? Is there a motivation? Like, why not just play whatever tier one? Well, that wasn't a post pressure format, right? Okay, the so you're still gas. So you I mean, thought also, it was a. Doesn't matter. I mean, okay. white control was okay. one of the main pillars of the format at the time, and Sam's just had a better white control deck. Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess. Um, so you would say that the RC standard, um, which uh, was RC in uh, San Diego that just passed, um, had not sort of gotten enough pressure on it from pro preparation. So, I mean, like that standard format, I would say everyone knew the good cards, um, but there were a lot of different configurations that people were playing them in. And um, the my impression was that kind of like the best deck was Esper Legends. And that is a kind of deck that uh, I am not well suited to play. Um, I uh, was having a conversation with a uh, guest at dinner yesterday. Um, this is not new ground for me, but we were, we were discussing uh, like uh, tactical versus strategic players. And um, I consider myself to be the very, very far extreme of strategic player, uh, which is um, both a uh, boast and admission of fault, I guess, simultaneously. I think that um, there are very few players in the game who, uh, when they like understand a format and have played it a bit, have like a better strategic approach to any given game or matchup or deck or archetype or whatever than I do. But there are a very large number of players who um, have like better tactical skills than I do. And a way that we framed it that I think is pretty good is basically like um, the tactical approach is like what is like the starting from right now what's the right play what happens next if i do this uh then like these possibilities exist and then from there there are these other branching possibilities let me figure out like which of these branches are good and kind of like brute force your way through thinking about like the rest of the game starting in this moment and um, I don't think that like my brain has the processing power to be great at brute forcing through how does the game play out starting from here and how do we like prune bad ideas to find the right play. And instead, I jump to what is this game about? What is the end point? Given that that's the end point, how do I get there? Um, and sort of Sam, a big picture, small picture thing. Yeah, what's up? Well, I would actually. Uh, I'm ask. I'm going to ask you a question. This is sure. not a conclusion I'm drawing. Do you feel like, regardless of how much preparation you've had, like you, we joke about how much preparation you put into pre-modern, but obviously that's not universal across different formats that you care about. If you're this 
super strategic player versus you know not one of the best tactical players on earth do you feel like you just played all the games and you know that like you you know what the it's look at how a, a pre-google chess computer would have run it right like oh i just have a library of all the event of all the available games i'm just going to best fit to to this based on my preparation and my deck selection where deck selection and probably limited deck selection right given your background as a limited player is uh you know is just like okay there's n n iterations but i've actually played all of them so i'm just gonna best fit this a little doctor so strange it's in, uh, like it's an interesting theory with valid premise like the idea that like oh well you've played more games of magic than roughly everyone so you can probably just like think of a game to map this to um and then you don't need to like think through it all because you can just be like oh this is like that time blah 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 um and i think that there is like that that isn't inaccurate but i also think that like my approach would be my approach like if that weren't true or if i were playing a different game or uh i I think that a lot of this is just about how my brain works like i think that i am good at like understanding systems and bad at like brute force processing. So I I would just like, we played a match recently at the, at the weekend of the RC, right? You, you tricked me into playing in the PTQ on Sunday and uh, I went first. So I won game one, but so my, I, I, it took me after, it took me like two days to realize why I'd lost the match actually. Right. So I won game one and Sam's playing a white control deck. So I am the kind of player I think like Sam is, where uh, I, I'm not the best imp- improvising on the table, so new information is actually bad for me, right? So uh, the more I can pattern against against things that I've played in the past is good for me. So I'm just like, oh, processing, processing, Sam's playing a white control deck. This is how I sideboard against white control decks. It never occurred to me that my trump card, which was Fable of the Mirror Breaker against white control... Like, I'm a red deck. I'm now switching into a Fable of the Mirror Breaker deck when I have like all these mid-range cards, was just trumped by the fact that Sam's deck is better on fundamentals, and now he's getting even better because he's a Fable of the Mirror Breaker deck, and I'm just trying to break even at this point. Versus all the white control decks I'd beaten on day one, we're just like, oh, I, I win on these fundamentals sometimes, right? But I'm just like a mile better than them when I become a Fable of the Mirror Breaker cough mid-range deck. But he's just, a, he's, he starts off with better fundamentals, and I never gained, right? So... Then I'm just like, I don't understand why I'm losing. I end up losing to cards that I'd never seen before. Like, you think Archangel of Wrath, man, you couldn't even make black mana. Uh, well, and uh, and so, but I that that's kind of like the parallel that I'm drawing, where it's like the new information took me two days to process after I'd already lost the match, uh, and it was because I didn't have anything in my library for this. And I actually maybe I should have just been even more beat down or something. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is kind of an interesting example because I. Uh, do, do we feel like improvising is more tactical or more strategic and how does that ha- like how, what role does like being in an unfamiliar situation like play in that because like one of the big reasons why you weren't able to sort of develop a, n- neither a strategy nor a tactic was because you were just unfamiliar with what sam was doing so that's like kind of a tricky thing because i'm not sure how it intersects with this idea um just because both strategy and tactics seem to be reliant on relevant preparation uh i mean if you're asking me i'd say the majority of players who aren't very good and i would put myself in this category imagine themselves to be the kind of player that sam described himself as which is like 
oh, I'm a, I'm a good strategic player, but sometimes I make mistakes at the table, right? I would argue that most of those players actually also have bad strategy, and they just they have they think that they have a library of games to draw against, but their library of games is minuscule relative to the library of games of an actual good strategic player. That's called boomer um, intuition. So, like, yeah, you have a bunch of words for it, right? But, uh, but I think that like people are actually very bad at strategy, and they, they don't understand. They often don't even understand how their deck works, right? And, um, and and they're doing this. But I would say I definitely have have a weak spot on tactics. Uh, and that, like, things that I didn't prepare for exacerbate for me. Like, Sam beating me is a good example, right? I beat him on beatdown in game one, right? Like, I went first. I got a point of damage in, because we were relying on Mirix, I think. You probably don't care. Like, oh, no, Mirix. yeah, I kept I I kept a, like, Mirix no mountain hand that had a bear reunion and, like, a bunch of red cards. And so I, like, got to see a decent number of cards but never found them. Yeah, so if I if I had understood why I had won game one, I probably would have tried to make my deck really fast. Instead of like I was used to just sitting there and accumulating resources and then blowing somebody out because I had like because like people are like oh well uh, people know how to play against a black deck with Fable right but like do they know how to play against a red deck that's just like I'm gonna remove all of your stuff I have Fable Cough and Chandra all going simultaneously I just would never have processed that Sam was playing the same game as me but better. Right, like he just had a bunch of cards that were like, right, we're both gonna, able into planeswalkers, but my planeswalkers happen to be flying creatures that kill your. Yeah, he just like took a turn where he killed like my Chandra and my my Koth at the same time, and I'm like, what the hell just okay, happened? The trouble right. I have with your side of the story is that it sounds to me like uh, you were strategically outplayed by Sam. No, I I was thought that I was strategically outplayed. It's I misidentified what it was going on. Right. Right. My my pattern system was this is how I beat white control decks. I misidentified that Sam actually was already ahead of me on that vector, and that like I had to choose a different plan or my loss was going to be inevitable. Okay, I, I want to tie this into deck selection because um, I think that what uh, we're talking about with tactics is sort of talking about like the Reed Duke Brad Nelson like tactical mid range player archetype um, versus the Sam Black you know. Uh, I, I want to help define the strategic archetype because I, 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 my question is, do you feel like your role, like your play style as a strategist sort of necessitates that you, uh, d uh, I mean, effectively don't play a known, like, cause you're also not a fan of open deck list, right? So you effectively just don't play a known deck list. Well, so, I mean, that said, there have been tournaments that I like. You know, my best run ever was with Mono Blue Devotion um, uh, during Theros Standard, where I top aided a Pro Tour and then three Grand Prix in a row with that deck. Um, and it was, you know, a known quantity. It like crushed that Pro Tour. And um, then it was like one of the pillars of that format rather than like the deck to beat. It was like there was that and Mono Black and Esper. And then there were like some tier two decks like red green monsters or whatever. Um, and after every tournament, I was like, maybe I need to stop playing blue because maybe people are finally going to like play more of these like random cards that mono blue can't beat. Um, and then that kept not happening and I kept winning. Um, and uh, so there are a few decks. So 
I would say that, you know, a deck like Lantern Control that I played a decent amount and had good results with is a deck that really rewards strategists. You need to understand uh, everything that the matchup is about to know which of their cards matter and which of their cards don't. And like, uh, just this is what the game is going to be about and um, whatever. Uh, there, there are, you know, there's not like a lot of like, which creature should I kill that's informed by like, how much damage is this going to deal to me over the next end turns or whatever. There's just like, what has to happen to get from here to them being locked. So, um, Sam, if I can interrupt you for a second, I think like, would you say using, actually, I think using both Monoblee Devotion and Lantern Control as examples, I think like the thing that I'm hearing implied is that imbalances in preparation lead to wrong conclusions on the part of your opponents. So like in the case of Lantern Control, if people aren't aiming directly for lantern control, the number of ways they can interact profitably with you is relatively narrow. And that you just aim for those things because you know from your superior position of preparation relative to the table, right? Like, I just have to deal with the following X cards in the matchup, and otherwise they can't beat me, right? Which is actually not dissimilar from how you approach pre-modern. And I, I was actually chuckling when you were talking about maybe I should stop playing mono blue uh, because people have figured it out. I remember that format really well, and I think that by the end of the format, people still didn't know who the beatdown was between Mono Blue and Mono Black. <laughs> and uh, and I, I, I'm like, I would say that right now, I don't think people knew who the beatdown was. Uh, uh, and I also said, oh, I think Reed Duke will top eight this Pro Tour, because they gave him a creature that's basically a Sensei's Divining Top. Uh, so <laughs> he's never going to lose, and he, he didn't lose it for a while. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 an interesting time because like I think it's it's you you what you know what you're doing of course is you're setting yourself up for success uh, in the certain play style you have, but um, one thing that like I guess should be clear um, like the, the thing that's exciting right is like I think everyone dreams of basically coming up with the deco innovation, taking it to a tournament, and then of course winning the tournament. Um, you know, surprising your opponents. And there's like kind of a confluence of things um, that make that uh, possible. So um, like I'm, I, I'm trying to figure out the question in there, but it, it's sort of like, well, you know, you're, you're a strategist, but you also like, you know, you, you also have access to something you described it as the muse uh, in our coaching session, which you, you have access to, um, like a muse that has a much better batting average than the muses of other players. Um, so like, do you credit that to your ability to uh, strategize with the deck once you've built it? Or, you know, is there an element to, to your approach to constructing a deck that kind of like, you know, sets you up for success? Um, like, what do you do that other people don't? I mean, like, aside from, I guess, I mean, I guess it's such a complicated thing because in a sense, you're one of the very, very few people, like, just in the world who brews decks with the goal of, like, competitive success. Like, when Mike told me that uh, he thought I was 
you know, the greatest deck designer or amongst the, the greatest, I was just like, oh, I well, you were the best. Yeah. And, and that's like Sam's red, white deck yeah. followed by. And I'm like, well, it's like, clearly it like, obvious that Sam was the was was the best after the red. White yeah, deck. it's like, well, it's clearly someone like Sam Black or or uh, Mohan ever uh, aspiring spike. Um, but sh- short of that list, I actually struggle to find people who, you know, are sort of dedicated to creating you know, new strategies to then, to then play, you know, you know, just well, so, I mean, is the answer just, I try to do it. And most people just don't think it's possible. I mean, like so many people, like the general consensus is like, it's a waste of time to try to build a deck for a tournament. Cause you're not going to do better than the hive mind has already done. And I just don't believe that. So, <laughs> yeah. I actually wrote a good answer, I guess in the official misers guide about that. And the answer is, it matters a lot if you're a content creator. <laughs> and the, no, for real. Right? No, yeah, like, of course, yeah. So your average, let's say your average finish, regardless of who you are, is not winning the tournament, right? Like, even if you're the best player, you don't win the tournament on average, right? So you say, even if you're the best player, your average is not making top eight, right? However, if you're a content creator, there's a huge difference between making top eight with, a, with your brew and making top eight with the deck that anybody else can play. And so, like, if any of us have uh, the opportunity to do above average some of the time when people are paying attention, the overlap between doing well and doing well with your brew is mag... It's, like, insanely magnified relative to anybody doing well with any random deck. Because the yeah, overlap I definitely is, is think what's important. The, the thing that you're talking about is extremely true. Um, like, the incentives for me uh, and other and other content creators, but especially other content creators who are, like different content creators brand themselves and market themselves for different things. And, um, you know, I have kind of always pursued, hey, I'm someone to listen to about like deck designing and like new ideas. Whereas, you know, there are other people who are like, I'm an expert at playing the best deck. so. For me, like, you know, the best result I can have in a tournament is winning with the known deck or winning with the deck that I've been writing about to show, hey, my sideboard guide yeah. is true, everyone should buy it. Um, but uh, the game that I've been playing as a content creator has always been like, hey, I want to be able to, like, just make up some new decks this week so that I have something to write about because a deck no one's played before is always something new that I can explain. And so I want to build up a brand where people believe that like this random list of cards that no one's played in a tournament before is like worth reading if I write it. Um, and so, I mean, that's been where I've existed since I started writing. And so, you know, for the last 15 years or so, my incentives have been that. So like every pro tour I've ever played like part of my you know deck selection value proposition is like okay these decks are really close one of them is like the team deck that's like a slight evolution of what everyone's been playing on moto and the other deck is like a deck that i built that is about as good maybe slightly worse but it has an edge because no one's played against it and obviously i've played against like whatever decks they're going to be playing so you know maybe i'm at a slight disadvantage on deck quality but i expect to make it up on average on matchup familiarity and 
whatever, it doesn't actually matter which of these decisions is like better from winning the tournament perspective because it's so much more valuable for me to go, uh, you know, 11 and 5 with my deck than 11 and 5 with the established deck. So, uh, I actually just want to say, Sam taught me something, it was actually after I was on Team Ultra Pro, but like, uh, he taught me something that I didn't know for like 20 years, and it was insane. So, Sam, I think it was Pro Tour Milwaukee, you made the Bant deck, uh, and like Tom and Ben played it to like high finishes, but not top 8. And uh, his toolkit was just, I realized how, I mean, how good Sam's toolkit was relative to everybody else's he's just like well look at where you can get value we're playing cards that are not bad like and so like the the rating of them is not bad right but not bad is not that much worse than the aces right so if you think of the best card you could play in the abstract is like siege rhino for sacred rights this is the best card you can play well wingmate rock isn't that much worse than siege rhino it's like a little bit worse okay but we just play like wingmate rock and dispel and some ridiculous sort of like white enchantments that are like also their rating is not bad they're like not as good as abzan charm but like they're not that much worse talking about a card that's like rated you know 97 points and 93 points or something and so we're giving up like you know if you added up all the cards in our deck and you added up all the cards in the abzan deck that won the pro tour right like we didn't give up that many points but we got a lot of points because who the hell is going to play around dispel in this like <laughs> this big creature deck there's not open deck lists right like so you just get like you get massive value from information imbalance right and you give up very little from configuration yeah um, but i think this is like this is my like sam black built this in a cave moment where like i think that by talking like i don't want to bring the content creation thing in there because it's it, at least from itself right like you enjoy this like you you know you made a choice like the brand followed after you know some initial success and like look you brew decks in limited like that's like the thing that you know again like you said like maybe people don't even think to do that to like explore more than the defined archetypes in like a limited environment um but uh yeah maybe i guess the the point is we'll never know your secret um besides you've you've practiced and you've done it enough uh and you've tried uh, and I do think that that's like an important first step of trying. So um, I guess I'll, 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 I'll lay it out from from what I'm hearing. You um, you need to be uh, you, you kind of need to be a strategist. So your preparation, your understanding the format like needs to be up to a certain level. Number two, you still have to be playing at least not bad cards. Um, and in some cases like pre-modern, you're just going to play the best cards, which people, uh, you know, for, uh, price considerations or other considerations don't play. Um, so it still kind of felt like you were, uh, going rogue. Uh, and then, and then there's just the last one is going to be to, to practice doing that until, uh, you break through and, uh, uh, rely on, uh, you know, where the, where the muse guides you, you have to find your own muse, everyone. Yeah. I mean, like if you understand what things a deck needs to be able to do and you understand how good a card is and you play a deck that does everything a deck needs to do with cards that don't suck your deck is probably playable right <laughs> yeah i mean that does you, that is basically your average finish isn't that much worse than your average finish with the stock deck is the yeah. last part of the sentence. No, actually, yeah, I, I love that. I love that particular angle about it because I think that a lot of the narrative has been, um, you know, it's a narrative in, inspired by tactics, um, which is the idea that if you lose a percentage point, you know, uh, in your deck selection, like 
that's a percentage point that you had for free, right? Like just play, you know, just play whatever, but play red, black, play Merktide. Like why would you choose a deck that uh, you lose percentage on? I think everybody on this call um, doesn't really believe, uh, you know, that the only approach is to start with the deck that's 52% and then try to tactically play your way to get all 52% and then spike. Um, I don't know. I, I think most people literally don't understand how their deck works. I think most people literally don't understand how the matchup in front of them works, and then they win. They win by random events. Well, yeah, but I think that's how most magic goes. Right, but not not for those who are trying to, um, you know, find success on on like the high under no, under the higher at, pressure environments, even at the high levels. So, like the, I mean, I was just thinking about this, like in in context of what Sam was saying about being a strategist for versus a versus a tactician. I actually went and looked up the top eight um, that I was that I was instrumental in. And um, I didn't know that Andre Coimbra had made top eight of Worlds in 2009 until that Sunday, because I was just like not paying attention to the Worlds coverage. I got a phone call. This is lightsaber standard, yeah? Yes, it's lightsaber and it's just like, and it was like BDM and Andre were just like, I need a sideboard guard. These are my matchups coming in, right? So uh, Andre was playing against Bram Snapfangers, uh, Pro Tour Hall of Famer in the top four. And I ended up, I ran home and I watched the match, right? And he sideboarded the opposite of how I said to sideboard. And I talked about it with him afterwards. And he's just like, Bram sideboarded into a mid-range deck, right? The sideboard strategy that you gave me predicated that I was going to be playing against a beatdown deck. So when he's, I, so I, he lost a game and he's just like, oh, shoot. He's just a mid-range deck now, right? So this is actually very parallel to... The match that I had with Sam, he's just like, I just dig into being, I'm just the same deck as him with Baneslayer Angel and removal, except for I have Noble Hierarch, which is better than not having Noble Hierarch, right? He had Mox Opal and Bram didn't, so he just destroyed him on the fundamentals, yeah. right? So, but, but Andre actually lost a game where he was trying to be like, I'm just going to be like quick removal, fast responses, quick removal, because he ended up getting, he ended up getting Archangel of Wrath by, by Bram having bigger cards, right? So like that is a case where somebody has, he has tools in front of him, cards that don't suck maybe in, uh, in the parlance that we've been talking about, but he's hyper improvised the situation that he was in. He's just like, this is, I'm just gaining information now, gaining data from the matchup that I'm in, but my opponent is not going to cooperate with my sideboard strategy. Ergo, I need to pick a different sideboard strategy or I'm going to lose the match. And then, you know. History says he didn't lose the match or any other matches. Yeah, tying this into pre-modern, um, I, I kind of have talked about the Dreadnought Mirror a lot, and I uh, through playing it, I sort of my opinion is that the sort of game theory optimal play is that both players uh, need to uh, essentially play a long grindy game uh, where uh, basically whoever accumulates the most lands and gushes wins. But you can sort of break that paradigm by. Uh, keeping all your dazes and like just trying to go fast into the other player and then it's just like a little bit more swingy but it's less reliable um <laughs> i you use the term game theory optimal all the time and i don't think that a i don't think it's appropriate in this case and b like when i play that matchup i jam as soon as i can most of the time under the theory that people are going to try to grind me so if they're going to play to try to grind like you know like i leave in all my dazes for example and you just talked about leaving all yeah. cases. And so my strategy in that matchup is actually to side out all my dreadnoughts and the guy's blessing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not everyone had your tool Sam's, set. Sam's they strategy. They didn't have make rocks, right? So you know, fly over three, you know, three fours for five. 
they don't have that. My, my, uh, like, okay, let, let me explain. So my game theory optimal is set so that you, so one player can get 50%, the other player can get 50%. And your strategy is maybe more of like a 45%, but it's like a lock. And if your opponent's not prepared for it or doesn't keep a hand that like whatever, you know, you can find the seam. I, I think both is no, fine. If I, if, I, if I assume my opponent is taking out days and I leave in days, then I have to play a game where the mana is such that my days are efficacious. And the fact that they don't have days punishes them. Yeah, but right? you also like, have to mulligan. I mean, that's like that's the idea. I mean, like I don't know. I don't. I don't know. Maybe you do. Maybe you keep a keepable seven. Yeah, but there's a, a lot of different right, games but that's, you can play. But that's but a range. I, right. Okay. Let's. Um, that's that's all in all. I mean, I want to um, talk about something. <laughs> go so, for it. Yeah. Uh, just on the subject of building decks and like why to do it. Um, so, like, you know, Mike correctly pointed out the uh, incentive thing and how that's, like, been a factor throughout my career. But, you know, I, I was, like, a brewer before I was a content creator. Um, you know, like, uh, as we discussed, my, like, breakout tournament um, in uh, the, the Winnicar tournament was with a deck that was nothing like anything anyone else was playing. Um, it didn't even follow the don't play bad cards principle. Um, and, uh, like the first actual tournament that I won, uh, was regionals a year before that, um, with one birds of paradise, right? Yep. My, my favorite deck I've ever played, uh, not the best relative to its format, but, uh, a really sweet deck. It was, uh, four senseis divining top four court of calling, uh, for Wood Elves, for Sakura Tribe Elder, um, for Noble Hierarch, or for Loxodon Hierarchs. Um, and then just like one of a whole bunch of different stuff that people played decks built around, but that were bad to draw multiples of. Like there was a green white uh, greater good deck that played, a, or there was a green white glare of Bitugazi deck that played like four glares. There was like a black white, like, small creature beatdown deck that played four Umazawa's GTAs. And there was like a Kamigawa dragon like deck that played four greater goods. And I was like, well, I can play the necessary creatures for all of those strategies and have access to them with like top and court of calling. And then instead of having a bunch of redundant copies of four mana make my creatures do something cards in greater good glare and jite i can just play one of each of them and i can play whatever game i want based on like which of those things i draw or whatever i want to choose to draw because of top in this matchup and like if i draw two of them instead of having like a blank card i have two super powerful engines and can choose the order in which i want to deploy them and um, that deck had this weird structure where it basically couldn't, like, the more colors in common my opponent had with me, the better the matchup was. If they were playing blue-red, I couldn't win. If they were playing any subset of Abzan, I couldn't lose. Um, it's a, so, Lanny, this is actually something that we've never talked about, but you've bumped up against, and this is my boomer intuition. So there's this concept of getting out mid-ranged. Right, so people are like, "Oh, mid-range decks can beat or lose." And you can get out mid-ranged, and that like 
Sam is talking now about a situation where he has mid-range inevitability because his opponent goes too far in a direction, right? Like, and the direction is only 2% in a direction, but Sam only went 1% in that direction, so he has like 15% in a different direction if he wants. So he just has opportunities for, for Trump at a minimum, if not card advantage, where his opponent is just like locked into a strategy. Right, and it, it was a deck that played really well it, like into, you know, my like strength as a strategist where it's just like which of the like do i want to be a glare deck a greater good a gta deck like uh a debtor's knell deck like which of the many like games my deck can play is this matchup about um because it just had a ton of card selection um that's tough to do in contemporary magic because they put so much power into low casting cost permanence now yes (laughs) I super appreciate the era Sam is talking about. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think we all do, and I think uh, that's a big right, reason that's why, why. That's why anyone plays pre-modern. Yeah, exactly. No, the, you're talking about an era that was three years after. No, I know. This isn't the pre-modern era. Oh, yeah. But I think that, like, the purpose of pre-modern is to get away from, like, the snowbally cards of, like, modern standard. Right. Like, this is yep. still the pre-Planeswalker era. Yeah. Yeah, so... Very I important mean, I, to note. Like I, people play classic legacy as well, which um, I don't know if it's, if it's full pre planeswalker, but it is pre like commander cards and no session. Like there's a pl- ton of nostalgia, you know, old school formats basically that are based on some sort of design principle that's like from an earlier era. I, I wanted to ask Sam about um, the statement that he made. Uh, you, you tweeted this, and I don't know if I understood it, and so I'd love for you to kind of explain more. Where you're saying you're talking about decks that are the best. What was it best in their form, like in their context or, or something? Because you mentioned that here and then you mentioned that with um, tax not. Um, so what uh, what exactly does that mean? Like, what's an example? Just, like, yeah. So a deck being the best relative to its format is basically just like you go into a tournament. Where do you have like the best equity, like the best matchup advantage against the field? Um, so like uh, a tournament where I might have had the best deck relative to its format would be uh, Pro Tour Philadelphia 2011, the first modern Pro Tour where I was playing uh, Mono Blue Blazing Shoal, in fact. Um, oh my god, I was literally <laughs> one of my all-time favorite decks. So yeah. good. Um, and so the thing that that format was about was, you know, it was uh, like a new format that everyone knew was broken in various ways. And so everyone is basically just like, okay, here are all the like busted combo decks. And then the other options are here's a busted ramp deck or here's a disruptive creature deck. And um, I happened to find out about and then tune uh, what I believed would be the combo deck that was best against other combo decks because it was simultaneously fast and disruptive more than the other combo decks were. Um, because it just like won with cheaper cards and had room for counter spells because its combo was like relatively tight. Um, and uh, so it, it was basically just like combo beater combo. Right. So, um, you, so then you, you made the statement that you won't know if Tax Knot is uh, going to be the best deck right. that you've played relative to its format. Right. Because, like, you know, both of these are decks that effectively got banned immediately immediately after i played them (laughs) so there was no ability to like build a lot of like matchup data against how they stack up against the other decks in their field lanny do you know this deck 
the stick that Sam's talking about? Uh, Mono Blue Infect. I mean, I've mm-hmm. I've heard. Uh, yeah, I've heard legends. Right, so it has it has a crossover at Progenitus, which is a weird crossover for two different decks, <laughs> right? Like when Sam's just like, oh, they both have my, giant. Monsters. My deck. This, this one deck has like a gush foil engine. And then this other deck also could play Gush and Foil if you're Sam Black. There's a crossover here, but these are two distinct engines, right? Like, his crossover is at Progenitus. At, yeah. <laughs> so, ten, so, like, ten days. Sorry, my crossover is what? The, cross- between the Tax Knot deck and the Infect deck. No, no, no. Both so, have 12 power creatures. The Infect deck is two different decks. Like, one deck is discard Progenitus to Blazing Shoal the opponent. The other one is to just get Progenitus in play. No, the deck had no way to get Progenitus in play. No, no, the, it's, uh, he's being ironic. Oh, okay. Yeah. He's, sure. being, he's being silly. Both decks right. contain, contain sure, monsters. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, anyway, I actually got... A little I, I want to go back to the point that I was making before yep. um, so about how I've always been a deck builder and it's not just the content creation angle that is the incentive for that another part of it is what is your goal um, and my situation in CEDH right now is uh, you know you talked about like there is an established CD- CEDH meta and I build decks. Um, like uh, I could just play like Timnacrom or one of the other decks that is like expect accepted as like the gold standard in the format, and uh, I don't. And people talk about you know it's a four-player format, so if you're winning like thirty percent of your games, you're doing all right. And so like if you had a deck that was literally just like on turn one, I win with protection 30% of the time, and the rest of the time, I mulligan to oblivion and lose. Um, and those are the only outcomes. Uh, like, is that a deck you'd want to play? And for a lot of players, they'd be like, yeah, I mean, that's better than, like, normal equity. That sounds like a good deck. I guess that's a good choice for a tournament. And um, that's not what I'm looking for. Uh, I'm, specifically, I'm looking to do better than that. Um, so, uh, not a lot of people know this, but people who have followed my career closely uh, might. There was another game that Wizards released called Dreamblade um, that was a miniatures game that they launched with like a Grand Prix-style tournament series. Um, this was before that strategy had proven to be a poor... Uh, marketing decision many times um, in an era when a bunch where a bunch of people were doing that, and um, I uh, played that game and I was uh, roughly the best in the world. Um, I won the first tournament of that game and the second tournament of that game, and um, then uh, was like you know. A known quantity, like established player, wrote strategy articles about the game and uh, had the experience of like when I go to a tournament, everyone expects that I'm going to win. Um, this was right after my first pro tour, but before I had like real magic success. And I credit the experience of having that role in Dreamblade with like giving me the mental game and magic needed to succeed, um, where. Like, I just was used to, you know, playing elimination matches, like, having the spotlight, uh, going in with, like, 
you know, the pressure that exists around expectation that you'll do well. And like, it, it was, you know, just transformative um, to be in that place from a like mental game perspective. Um, an experience that I had in that game once was, so it's a complex board game type game with dice. And um, I, the way that I practiced that game was um, with my roommate, uh, Justin Cohen, um, and we would like, you know, talk through everything and make like, you know, optimal plays. And so I got it. I made this move where uh, my opponent could choose to attack me. And if they did, they would basically have a 40% chance of crushing me and a 60% chance of like roughly losing the game. Uh, and so I was like, okay, cool. So my opponent can't take that move. So this is the right move for me this turn. And my opponent saw the opportunity to have a 40% chance to win the game knew that they were playing against me and they were like, sign me up. <laughs> I will take my 40 percenter. And uh, they hit their 40 percenter and I ended up losing. And I was like, oh, that was correct for them and incorrect for me. I should not have given them a 40 percent chance to win this game. This was an 80 percent matchup. <laughs> and uh, yeah, but that's also great assessment by the opponent, right? That's what right? I'm saying. Like, yeah. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like it was correct by them and wrong by me. I King nine not. shove. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so my approach to commander is just like, if I have a deck that's winning less than 50% of my four player games, I'm not interested. Like I, I believe that it is possible to do better than that. And I believe that I can find better than that. And I don't believe that playing the existing decks like, I, I just, I believe that more broken than what people know about exists, and I just need to find it. Yeah. Um, and I think most people just don't have that arrogance. <laughs> Is it oh, arrogance? The humility, have a different the, humility, <laughs> the humility scales have all of a sudden shot. Like, no, I mean, um, I agree with No, 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 we all agree. I mean, look, I think, I think we, the like I said, everyone on this call wants to, you know, know something, find something out that other people don't. So, um well, there's a thing what Sam was talking about. It's just like why even bother to try to outdesign the hive mind, right? I think that the, I think that the relative the times that you can outdesign the hive mind, especially since Magic Arena for standard, right, it's become very rare, right? So that's one of the reasons why I was so impressed by Sam's red white deck uh, coming out of the, coming out of the RC because it was just so meaningfully better. He than, built this in a cave, like <laughs> no, but I'm like I'm not kidding, right? So like. I used to I used to fight with Patrick Chapin about this all the time. I was just like, there's just no point in trying to like discuss this thing. And then every so often we'd come up with like five color mono blue dragons or something, which is like something that no one had ever seen well, before. I mean, a notable thing about the red white deck is that like I'm not reinventing the wheel, right? Like that was a twist on an established archetype where I found like a couple of good cards that fundamentally change how the deck works and makes it better. But I'm not. It's you know, it's not really like a ground up kind of deck. No, but. My rule is always it's a, the question that I always ask is should a deck exist, right? So like a lot of the time people play these decks and I'm just like, well, I don't know why you're playing this in pre-modern or whatever format. This is literally just this other deck, but worse. worse. Yeah, right. And it's worse across the board almost right. every single time. You're just like, this is just sly with exploitable mana, 
right? Or this is just this, and except for you deal more damage to yourself on average. And people are just like, I want to play this, and like, so they have a shitty reason for 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 wanting to play this deck. Your deck gained more life than the average than the average white deck, despite having a mana base that could, you know, be different colors or whatever. Then also did weird things like, like buying buying bitter reunion out of the graveyard with the rebuy angel was so profoundly different and interesting and then like it has all these like implications that, that are going to that, that just complexify how this otherwise like modern modern white is the simplest deck in standard in some ways right like it only does one thing which is to build advantages on the battlefield and hopefully those advantages a withstand uh Invoke despair, and you have enough life points that you don't lose to direct damage. That's basically it. And if both of those conditions are true, you beat your opponent with a three-four. Like that's that's about what it does, right? But you gained all these levels of of of, uh, of value that were there. So I my rule is always just like one of two things: Did you make your deck a turn faster? Right. So if you make your deck a turn faster, you win. If you make your deck a turn faster, now you actually have the archetype deck. Right? Not even a reason to exist. If you just take the same deck, you're a turn faster, you're the archetype deck, and it might take people a while to figure it out. Right? So a good example is I always joke, but um but Sandy Dog won a Grand Prix with Wild and the Cattle a month after I had already this I was like, this is how burn deck should be built. And it took six months before everybody was playing my burn deck, right? Like I played it at, at a regional championship and uh I can't remember who, like some multiple Grand Prix top eight competitor made fun of me for having the card inspiring vantage in my deck. If you can imagine, he said nice standard card. Like, okay, now look at how burn decks are built in modern, right? So, uh, so I just go, you make your deck a turn faster or you gain a capability without meaningfully giving up, without meaningfully giving up something else. So like one of the things I just like, I, I gave up the capability of losing to other burn decks by having stupid stomping ground in Right? I lost nothing. Just don't play a Tarkus command, right? The same way, like your red white deck, you gained a ton of capabilities and arguably gained speed. Right? So uh so that's the way I think it's like, hey, can you make can you make this one of two things? Did you gain capability or did you or did you gain speed? Because if you're the same deck but faster, you actually just win. You win. Yeah. It's not it's not like straight up a brew, but it's definitely an innovation. That's right. Kind so, of like, I mean, yeah. You're framing it in terms of like the effect of building the deck this way was this big picture thing. But I think where it came from was more like the thing that the white mirror is about is the fact that white's not good at answering planeswalkers. And so you have these like competing planeswalker decks where like post board, sometimes pre board, like they have farewell. And so people can like build up these like massive advantages that just don't matter because if it's not a planeswalker, it just gets killed. And so the whole game is about like competing for planeswalker advantage, um, where no one has like an actual good answer to planeswalkers because they have like ossification, but that gets swept up by farewell, it's destroyed and, you know, by a, it, any number of enchantment removal cards, right? right? Um, but if you just play a bunch of flying creatures with haste. You kill your opponent's planeswalkers very easily. <laughs> and um, so then I was like, oh, everyone thinks that this matchup is about planeswalkers, but I can just beat my opponent's planeswalkers by making it about flyers. 
And also, I don't need to bother with planeswalkers because they're not that good. But like, the, like what the cards it, just aren't good in the deck. What about the first time you gave a reflection haste? Or the thing is like, that's the thing I was just like, oh man. Once the reflection gets haste, it's just like, because people, I think people really just never understood Fable of the Mirror Breaker. They're just like, they have all these words they say about Fable of the Mirror Breaker. And but they're no true. intuition. They're No, they're just like, they're true in certain cases, right? And they're just like, oh, this is why it's bad. This is why it's good. This is why you're just saying words, but it's good in this case or this case. Fable of the Mirror Breaker is mostly good most of the time because the opponent has to spend two cards on it. And if they don't, they are just they just lost some number of percentage points of winning the game. Probably somewhere between five and fifteen points of, 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 of winning the game if they don't spend two cards on it. What you did was you took away a turn by which they could spend one of the cards on half of the Fable of the Mirror Breaker. And that means maybe you get two activations out of the reflection. That might be worth 30 percentage points in the game. Right? Like yeah, that's and a massive I mean, upgrade. It also like means that they can't answer the like backside with sorcery speed removal without me getting to use it. Yeah, I mean, or I mean, even when you give the goblin token it, like an advantage sometimes, right? Like Yeah, no, the giving like the goblin token was, is also great. Because in the way that you just designed your deck, that might mean that you have access to black mana for your for your uh, Archangel of Wrath in a situation where you wouldn't typically have black mana, which means that you might come in for seven instead of coming in for three. You know, like there's so many things change based on this very small, based on this very small thing. But and like, so what I'm talking about is like not necessarily the generation of a new deck, but like why should your, why was your white control deck so much different and better from my perspective than a mono white one? So like A, it was faster. Be it gained more life, right? So, and then C, it had like literally a library of different capabilities that other white controls just simply didn't have. Yeah, so I built that deck and then I asked a friend if I should play it. And the answer was, well, like mono white does better than red white. And it's not like people haven't thought of putting Fable in the white deck. So, like, I assume that, like, you're just supposed to be mono white and not red because like this isn't like you know this isn't new and it wasn't doing well and i'm just like no i think this bitter reunion part is like pretty important and yeah, people that's haven't the done weird it. thing not a soul was playing bitter reunion at that point point. and the other thing was bitter reunion being a permanent versus just being like a you know a tormenting voice or something was so was so vital to what made that deck interesting. Oh man, I really hope uh, our listeners have played All Will Be One Standard. Um, <laughs> See you, man. Are we are we good on uh, deck design? Because I did actually have one more uh, topic. <laughs> yeah, we, we we've we've briefly touched on pre-modern a few times in this yeah. podcast. So. Um, <laughs> Sam, I know that you uh, kind of have this game design thing going, and I, I want to ask you, uh, between your experience of pre-modern and your experience, um, at the very least, consulting on, um, is it just one set? Is it just Modern Horizons, or have you, or are you at liberty to discuss? Modern Horizons 2 is the set that I spent some time in the building working on. Oh, yeah. Um, so terrible. my question is really, um, you know, what is your 
sort of take on how magic is designed now and like you know what's kind of your opinion like should should contemporary magic steer more towards um like design that gives you pre-modern era gameplay like are there like what's kind of the lessons to be learned from pre-modern or is it really just like you know pre-modern you can get there from here there but okay let's uh, let's i mean i don't know let's make this interesting right it I'm sorry, is, what is, do you mean by that? You mean that we can't go back too, at this point? It's too late? Yeah, well, toothpaste so, in the tube. I yeah. mean, like, how do you get back, right? Like, if you assume that, like, pre-modern gets to play the way that it does because there's just, like, a lower power level that makes cards less snowball-y, um, magic is too big for you to do Mercadian Masks. <laughs> um like uh so for people who aren't ancient um Ursa's saga block came immediately before mercadian masks saga block was uh an incredibly powerful relative to the game at its time uh set with like a lot of you know cards that are busted and banned in various formats to this day and, and the ones that uh, aren't banned are a thousand dollars. Yeah, and <laughs> um, masks uh, was a bit of a step back in power level, uh, a recalibration. Um, and uh, basically, every card in the format in the block sucked. Um, yeah, that was my all-time best format. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the problem, so when you do that, it's potentially good for the long-term health of the game, but the set in the moment doesn't end up like being well loved or selling very well. And I think that um, wizards like moment to moment profit incentives are a little overwhelming for them to want to uh, take a hit like that. And also it is very clear that their design incentives are to uh, never make a set that doesn't print a, decent number of cards with a commander audience in mind uh like the commander audience is the bulk of the magic audience and um you want to be able to sell cards to them. yeah so um, i mean let's let's go ahead and take economic incentives out of it like, like let's take talk about designing the best game that we can because that's that's sort of where i'm most interested because i think i think uh, why? Wizards why? is the division of a public company. There is like Mike. It, it doesn't exist. Mike, thought experiment. There, there is no art in thought, commerce. Art. Thought experiment. Exist. Okay. Um, because this is this is important. Because like, let's go ahead and take economic incentive out. The uh, uh, the first. What does the F and fire stand for? Everybody. Fun. Right. Right. So they it's are not fun. They are. <laughs> They're trying to design the most fun game possible. So my question really boils down to, let's say we printed, uh, you know, the next standard environment was like, I don't know, Wild Mongrel and like whatever. Like, you know, the next standard environment had this sort of like pre-modern incremental like, like feel. Like we all, we, everyone in this call thinks that this is fun. Sam, from your sort of design well, perspective, do you actually- Nobody Constrictor and that card was literally- <laughs> I, I know, but it's oh <laughs> well, right. But it existed among other cards that existed in a modern era. Yeah, duh, Mike. Come on. Anyways. No, I mean it's standard. Like, no, I mean I guess people played in the sideboard. You, of oh my god, you know what question I'm asking. My question, the question is, of course, like you know, when you look at like you know, when you look at contemporary magic, and and if you were designing for an audience, like you know, even if it's like a, a smaller audience now or a bigger audience now, like do you think that 
like i mean i don't know do you think that mad like because you play every format do you think that contemporary magic uh uh is fun is it more fun compared to pre-modern do you think that like i play and like every format i I think magic you like modern you like pioneer yeah Yeah. duh (laughs) you know this about sam yeah (laughs) yeah sam plays everything no, I mean, I also play everything, and I, I mean, I'm just thinking about, like, whether I should continue to play everything, but I don't have fun playing everything. Yeah. Right. I mean, I don't play everything. I don't play 100-card decks. Yeah, but, I mean, let's just go I ahead. I mean, they're fun. <laughs> I mean, it ruined my game. Is it, have you played 250-card decks? <laughs> no. Um, so I, I, I mean, I, I would have a long alienating speech about this, so all right, I don't need so, to alienate, including our guests this week. <laughs> I, I, I just want to ask your, your personal opinion, because I think a lot of pre-modern era players feel alienated by the game in its contemporary state, and you clearly don't. You have an appreciation for both. So, I don't know. Do you kind of get what I'm sort of, like, laying down, which is just, like, you know, what's your, you know, what's what's your feel? Like, do you think that, like, we need to, like, dial back on the direction that contemporary formats are going? Do you think it's just, like, these two completely different things and, you know, we're never going to get pre-modern uh, play pattern out of, you know, uh, contemporary magic? Or, or like, do you think that that wouldn't even be a good thing because it wouldn't even be as fun as what we have now? Like, what's kind of, like, you know, uh, it, you know you're, you're clearly drawn to pre-modern at least a little bit. So, um, <clears throat> you know... Well, Gaia's Blessing is really powerful. <laughs> Uh, yeah, okay. I mean, I don't know. So, can you design a contemporary set that has Guy's so, Blessing? <laughs> the thing is, like, when I think about the experience of someone playing against me, I think that my non-pre-modern opponents would have more fun in the long run than my pre-modern opponents. Um, Interesting. Why? Because you feel like because he plays guys' blessing decks, (laughs) right? Like, I mean, when I have played pre-modern in the land tax era, I would say that my opponents rarely express a lot of joy (laughs) about the game outside of any appreciation they might have for like the the efficacy of my deck. Um. There's not, like, a lot that, like, where they're feeling like, oh, this was some, like, really, like, engaging gameplay. I was really, like, looking forward to my, like, draw step to see if, like, the game would be different than it was in the previous turn. Like, (laughs) you know, you spend a lot of time in a situation where the outcome of the game is a foregone conclusion. Like, basically from when I sign up for the tournament. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> the humility is all gone like, <laughs> well if you had sam's win rate maybe you would have a that's what i keep telling sam's people POV. that's what i keep telling people uh if i if i can be completely candid i think your villain arc is definitely building up because no, uh you know you're not. out there i broke pre-modern and there's some people who are just like oh man just just give them to me. like everyone wants wants I, to get I a piece of I actually would you. rather just talk about Sam being like the reason Lantex should be banned is because the game has reached an inflection point, and now it is a meme. And if uh, if you don't ban it, it is just gonna it's it's just gonna meme in these directions, and it's gonna become inevitable, right? Yeah. Like I've, I've since it came out while we've been recording podcasts, I've only skimmed the uh, reasoning from Martin Berlin, but uh, it does seem like he's taken uh, that 
idea into consideration, which is just that like if if you're just going to take every archetype and make it better by adding land tax, then it's got to go. Uh, right. Like while land tax was its own archetype and it was, you know, maybe it was the best archetype, maybe it wasn't, but it was just like, here is one way that you can play this format. Here's a deck. And, you know, like that's, that's fine. You know, it like, if we ban it, we remove an archetype. If it exists, it is an archetype, whatever. The moment I prove no, this isn't one archetype. This is a way to improve whatever deck you feel like improving. It's no longer acceptable. Like you just can't have this is the best way to do everything in the format. Yeah, because I mean, the card I think is it, too good, right? Yeah. Like that's it's that was always my argument, right? Lanny's counter argument was Parfait doesn't win at a, at a preternatural rate. I was just like that's irrelevant to the argument. The argument is the card is too good. If you line the card up to every other card in the format, it. It's impossible to play properly. Well, Sam's, Sam's card is actually Mox Diamond. Did I get context. derailed before I finished telling the story about the conversation that I had uh, with the... Um, Strategist, tactician, dinner guest? No, 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 no. no. The, the conversation I had uh, with the successful Eternal player about the machinations of the tax rack engine. Um, I don't know if you... Go ahead and retell so, the point. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so we had a conversation, right, so he was telling me about how he had a friend who had some decks and they would play and he followed the format and saw that I'd been doing well with it, and um, I mentioned that, uh, right, so we, yeah, I think we branched off at talking about trying to, like, separate player from deck to, like, figure out, so where I was going with that a very long time ago is um, I mentioned, like, other people don't play my deck at a high rate. Um, like, it hasn't seen, like, widespread adaptation. And, like, maybe that's just because not that many people own Mox Diamonds. Um, maybe it's because not that many people enjoy playing land decks. Or maybe it's because the deck is difficult for people to play. And, like, it's difficult in a bunch of different ways. There's, like, the strategy about, like, which cards you need to inter interact with. Um, and uh, like when to what to tutor for, what to guys blessing back, what to counter, um, like how to like establish your like tax rack engine, like what to enlighten tutor for when you don't have either piece, a lot of moving parts. And like, yeah, there are a lot of moving parts, but like, does it even matter? Like you're drawing four cards, you're drawing seven cards a turn, like, how you can mess it up so much and you still draw seven cards a turn. Um, and uh, then I was like, well, I guess maybe like if someone didn't understand like the fundamental operations of the deck independently from not understanding like this, you know, complex strategy, like if they didn't know about like using scroll rack between their land tax triggers and he was like, wait, what? Oh yeah, <laughs> let's take a second surely oh, Jesus Christ I hope Francisco knew this too because so Fran is one of the people who was just like oh I couldn't play Sam's deck I as a land tax player am aware that you should have lands in your library to find for your second land but well, so one of my, one of my yeah, arguments yeah, against land tax was how badly I played the deck right. so I played planes when I should have been playing islands oh, yeah. I often forgot that I had Sylvan Library and Scroll Rack in play. Sorry, where, so where I would go entire turn cycles 
using neither Sylvan Library nor Scroll Rack. Or triggering, or triggering an Ivory Tower. Seven, or I okay. did not gain life with we're being, Tower, we're being, but I was drawing seven cards a turn. Oh yeah. How could I lose? We're such, we're such bad podcasters. Please, com please complete the, the point. <laughs> so, like, he never, like, found the, like, use tax, or use rack between your tax triggers because he never had, like, just a bunch of these things in play because he would just shuffle away his extra land taxes because he didn't have enough lands in his deck. Okay. He would just, like, put them back with his scroll rack. And it's like, no, no, no. You cast it and you cast your scroll racks, and that's how you unlock draw 10 cards a turn okay. every turn. So, But, like, when people are, like, you know, maybe they can just, like, beat you by playing creatures because you only have four sword supplies in your deck. It's like, no, no, no. You have infinite. I draw 10 cards a turn. I blessing back all... I, I, that means, with Gaia's Blessing, I draw multiple sword supplies every turn. You cannot beat me by just casting more creatures. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I think... Um, yeah, I think this is, like, kind of... Uh, I mean, look, you're absolutely right. Like, my analysis is that... Um, you know, I, I have a little bit more of a tempered analysis because I'm kind of more plugged into what people are trying and what, what's going on. I, I do know people have tried the deck. I do know that, like, for instance, like Rich Shea has tried the deck. Um, and Rich understands, you know, sort of how to, like, locate the lines and, like, formulate, like, you know, he's a good strategist. He's a good tactician. So um, I will say that, like, basically the experience that most people had, or uh, I'll just talk about our experience. So Francisco played the deck. We, we booted it up on Magic Online. And, um, uh, you know, I beat him with like the rock and I beat him with the goblins and like, you know, whatever. And obviously those are decks that you probably don't find yourself losing to. Uh, and then same kind of thing. I played your deck, uh, and then I like kind of like lost to the rock and then, or I lost to the rock and I lost to blue green madness, survival madness. And I was like, oh, again, I don't know. So I think that one of the things that was happening was basically like, I think people, myself included, were maybe losing these games and then, like, also not really uh, seeing what they could have done better. Like, not even, like, taxing in or uh, racking in between tax active, uh, triggers, but also just kind of, like, working, like, for instance, in Rich's case, working from, like, just a different mindset, which is, like, Rich already has a deck that he feels is, you know, very powerful and just, like, does everything that he wants it to do specifically. Right, so I he might have been less open-minded. Um, I think that I was trying to win with the deck in a way that other people aren't. I think that for me, like, this is, like, my project, and I want to see it succeed. And when I lose to anything, I am like, okay, my deck shouldn't lose to this. It's a thing that, like, the tools exist to beat all the things. How can I incorporate something that will make me not lose to this without giving up, like, anything that matters anywhere else? And other people are like... I lost to a thing. I knew this was the wrong deck. I should go back yeah. to this other deck that I want a reason to play. Um, and like with a deck that's like that complicated and that flexible, like if you don't want it to win, it's not going to. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a great point. And I think that like, you know, my opponent uh, in the eighth round of, of the champs uh, playing that deck, uh, you know, uh, they started five zero and two. You know, they they clearly knew knew what they were doing with it, and they wanted it to win. And then even then, uh, assuming that they had as much experience as they did, you know, they couldn't optimize um, or or strategize or tacticalize. You know, 
uh, from their position to produce I mean, a win. Sometimes um, stuff doesn't go your way. Yeah, no, for sure. Like you can do everything right. I guess I want to go your way 100 percent of the time. I guess like yeah, it's it was an interesting phenomena for sure that basically you were the only believer in in Sam Black tax rack, and we were about to see that happen with Sam Black um, uh, tax not. Uh, what was going on with the pre-modern super series thing or whatever it's called like how do you have eight people choosing three decks each and not one of them is like maybe i should try this tax uh we we locked uh i was the only player allowed to so i was the only joiner um because francisco uh had some circumstances so, so that he lost his spot and so i was about to choose your uh your tax rack not deck um, but everyone else locked in their decks on june 13th um, so they all, they all never had a chance and I was going to do it, uh, but I wanted to play burning wish. So I was like made, I, I wanted to do my cool thing, which is burning wish for decree of annihilation against Lancetill, which would have been so sick. Uh, and now I don't know what's going to happen with this. Uh, I, I don't think they should. Did any land tax decks get played in day one? No land. Oh, well, Rich and I are the only ones with land tax and we both didn't play it on day one. So I don't think you should have to reroll decks. I mean, those are the rules when the tournament started. Yeah, I mean, um, I guess let's slightly pivot into this. Um, basically, the conversation right now is like, are people going to watch the PSS if we're playing in a different metagame? Pretty pretty simple. Of course they are. Yeah, I mean, so different. I don't know. But isn't it I mean, more exciting? How many people watch the PSS now? Those people love pre-modern whether or not Lantax got <laughs> Right, but they're, they'd be even more excited. If they yeah. <laughs> those people in Efro. Wait, Efro's watching. Okay, anyways. Oh yeah, I chat with Efro a lot last year during the PSS. Sam, did you watch? No. <laughs> Darn, can't can't I get mean, him to Sam, can't Sam get him to stop point. building CEDH decks for there, one there night. There are only so that two land tax decks in the in the in the PSS, but how many rock decks are there? There's three. <laughs> There's three. Look, I couldn't choose. I couldn't choose the decks for everyone. I would have given everyone. How many twelve twelve decks are there? Two. Uh, there's three. Yeah, I think that people people were were playing playing with boxing gloves on this one. Hey, I mean, I big, picked a I pick a deck that beats that deck. Anyways, let's uh, that's beside the point. Um, okay, so <laughs> we were talking about design. We were talking about how much fun we're having. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, should we should we talk about what the format's going to look like? Uh, if you, yeah, I would love to hear your opinion. I mean, I think that you come from a, a very unique perspective given your interaction with the format. So, yeah, what you got? Well, so I guess, you know, a first question is like, does this affect the metagame or any other decks? Or were few enough people playing land tax that this just doesn't change anything except it removes, like, Land tax I can I can tell you that um, less than ten percent of people play land tax decks. Right. So presumably, like most pre-modern players, play the decks that they want to play. Like at the tournament at Misty, someone noticed that there were a surprisingly large number of Terravore decks, and they're like, "Why are there so many Terravore decks here?" And I was like, "Well." Maybe people anticipated Landstill and they thought that like Terravore was a good strategy against it. Because like Weathered Wayfarer and Armageddon line up pretty well against like what's going on in Landstill. This conversation happened next to someone who was playing Terravore, who explained that he saw the Terravore deck and 
that was the thing that made him play pre-modern because he thought it looked sweet. <laughs> I just think they're neat. Dot JPEG. <laughs> um, yeah, and um, I think that you know a vast majority of pre-modern deck selection is these are the cards that I remember liking from this era. I found a deck list that had them. I copied that deck list. Um, so I guess land taxes, presence or absence from the format really doesn't inform that experience in any way. Um, so I guess we should assume that like the metagame outside of that is pretty much the same. Well, there is, there is like a, like round five metagame where it's a little bit more, uh, sharky and also, you know, well, I think more people will play the red deck. But I don't think the people playing the red deck will necessarily be drawn from the people who used to be playing land tax decks. I think of the non-land tax players that the red deck had fallen in popularity. Now it will regain a lot of popularity because of how bad it was against the, well, the land tax. It deck. lost a lot of that popularity due to Dreadnought, though. Like Dreadnought is an actual like yeah, but, twenty percent. Um, yeah, but the two of them rate. together being the two best decks in the format, other than land still, and then like also. So there's landstill players like me and Tom are just going to beat the red deck anyway. Yeah. Do you think like, that land tax like players the, will accept a deck that doesn't beat red? You know. Okay. So but the there are other decks that they can play that sure. like. Yeah. I I I think as somebody who like likes to play land tax, you like to do things like you like to outsmart your opponent. You like to touch your library. There are other decks that do those kinds. Yeah, of things. and I think that those other decks are not necessarily like unbeatable by red. Right. Um, yeah. Like, you know, as someone who's like, well, I want to play like Mox Diamond and Gush, like, if my deck doesn't have Enlightened Tutor, Ivory Towers, or an Orb, like, I could lose to a red deck. Like, that's yeah. not hard to imagine happening. For um, sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Elves and Goblins are two very good decks that, uh, you know, were effectively preyed on by Oath, Oath Parfait decks. Um, there's not an Oath deck that can really leverage Shard Phoenix. Um, so well, because it would need, need to be a deck that like produces red mana, and if you don't like, it's hard to produce red mana if you don't have undiscovered paradise like, and you, Mox diamond and gemstone mine and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, you could so. play like the green blue oath deck that rope stam into the format, which it's it's almost unconditionally better than it was three hours ago, right? Like <laughs> I'm not saying like oh this is the best deck, but I was trying to make a deck that was better than Landstill, not a deck that was better than. Than other oath decks yeah. when I made that. Deck, I mean, right? BK BK has his beast BK beasts. Yeah, um, so that is a blue green oath deck, right? Yeah. Like, but I was actually thinking like maybe the people who are geeks on parfait decks, you know, not sand black versions of land decks, but parfait decks, I think they could get a lot of value out of like mulch, uh, mulch based scroll rack decks, and that'd be like really interesting. And like they would be like pretty bad against combo maybe. Yeah. But maybe they'd be like really good against other things. Sam, do you and think that Scroll Rack is going to be a playable card in pre-modern in the future? So, uh, the top four of the Misty tournament, I played against um, the uh, like Mulch Terror deck, and the idea of trying to put Scroll Rack into that deck is at least somewhat interesting. Um, I mean, I gotta say, I'm very. Uh, I'm very. I don't think that scroll rack is gonna be good. Uh, like I don't know. Do you need? You would need like mulch and gush. Like there's not. There's just not too many. There's no card like land tax that just puts a large so, volume of hand cards in your hand and Randy repeatedly. Randy Bueller won. Randy Bueller won the standard portion of U.S. Nationals in 1998 with a very fair green white deck playing a mulch scroll rack engine. 
So he literally his engine was mulch, scroll rack, Gaia's blessing. He went five and one in standard, which was the best, which is the best standard record that year. You could probably do better than Randy's deck in pre-modern, but there's there's some pretty substantial evidence for this being capable of competing with, for example, uh, you know, decks that were playing Sapphire Medallion with Counterspell Backup on turn two and turn three, or turn three combo kill decks, or red decks with Fire Blast and Jackalpop. Well, my, like, all of those things existed. My, and my baseline standard. I mean, my baseline thought is that the mulch deck as it stands already leverages an advantage from the lands it draws. It'll just draw cycling lands or man lands or wastelands. And so like racking those for value uh, isn't that exciting. And then also... Um, well, but you get to make sure that your mulch hits more. Yeah, but like uh, playing... A, playing... Well, doesn't... I mean, wait. honestly, playing Mox Diamond to get a bunch of dudes in play seems like a waste of the Mox Diamond. Well, you're right? most... Like, I mean, first you got to get your mulch numbers up, right? So how many, like, you're gonna, you need to get your average mulch numbers up, and then once you're there, you're going down on the score rack cast and the mock diamond cast, and so it just feels like it's the, it doesn't like add up to, uh, it doesn't it feel like it adds like, up to an engine. It definitely seems, sounds like this has to be a blessing deck for it to make any sense. No, no, it yeah. probably has to be a blessing deck for sure. Right, because you need like, to be mulching more than a normal number of times. But like, it just—it seems like every time I see somebody, and I, you know, I talk about Jeff Ferris on this podcast a bunch. But it seems to me like I—I I own Mox Diamonds, but I'm using them to cast a Werebear. Just seems like a foil Werebear. <laughs> come it's a, it's on, man! I just like think they're—I just think they're neat. I just think they're neat. <laughs> I, my, I think that the reaction of "Come on, man!" is. <laughs> A reasonable reaction to this. All right, more like, breaking news. Swords to plowshares a bull, and that is like all of the. But a nimble mongoose. Nimble mongoose. I like a not. nimble mongoose. That's a different story. Um, uh, breaking news: the pre-modern showdown series uh, will continue on with no changes, no rerolls, no whatever. This will be the last uh, tournament played with land tax. Oh man, I hope you I hope you decree of annihilation everybody you play against, including I mean, Rich Shea. Oh yeah. And uh and that <laughs> Rich and will that probably the, have a land tax and play himself, so <laughs> and that but that the last the last taste anybody has of the card land tax is horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I hope. So speaking of Sapphire Medallion. Oh yeah. That's that's where I want to go. Uh, you've got a gush sapphire medallion, like sort of blue black uh, psychotog deck. Yeah, is that what you're talking about? Some something in that space. Like probably, I, I will probably like you know start over in making the deck list. Um, and I haven't decided like what I want to kill people with. Like, so, is it dreadnought? Is it haunting echoes? Is it psychotog? Is it like Quirion dryad? Um, oh, you're talking Lanny's language now. Hey, he likes a good 66% of the cards you just named. I like all of them. I mean, so uh, I think Sam drafted this deck and there was like a deep analysis in the mix and I was like, oh yeah. Like, oh I, yeah, it's, oh, this is Lanny's uh, language. Uh, deep analysis is conservative. We, we might be quiet specking for deep analysis. Oh yeah. I was thinking, I was gonna say, are you gonna intuition for deep analysis? Yeah. Intuition well, for That's deep how deep. you know what you want. Right, so like, the question is basically like, how aggressive can I afford to be with my life total in this situation? And like, do the deep analysis have to live in the sideboard? And like, we start by intuition for AK, but then like post sideboard, we just have AK and deep analysis. <laughs> yep. So 
Yep. I think that the the thing that I'm scared of personally is like even when I want to meet up with twelve twelves, I was playing Phil Nguyen twelve twelve proxies. Then Lanny like guilted me into buying a set of twelve twelves, and they're just next on the chopping block. Right, like this thing with land tax is not portend well for people who just bought twelve twelve. Yeah, but twelve twelve was half the top eight of Lobster Con one last year. It was it was the other degenerate deck that would made up the the twin the twin flames right. so, of your degenerate. Deck. I'm, like I definitely think that where I go might just be cut all the stupid cantrips from Dreadnought to play Sapphire Medallion and a bunch of actual card draw spells. Yep. And yeah. then just like play more 12 12s. Yeah, I so like what if I like adding more mass to the deck. I think that obviously it's different. Like, you know, the deck really wanted gush, uh, like it has to draw gush, right? And so if you have access to just like beefier draw spells, you know, that might that might get you there, so but maybe Sapphire Medallion's great if you go out in this direction, right? So I was thinking, you know, you had this crossover point which is which is the the gush foil crossover point that links together a Sam Black based land tax deck and this is traditional uh, Stifle Knot deck. What if the crossover point is Stifle and you're just like, all right, here's a deck that's Parallax Tide. Stifle, uh, Vision Charm, and here's a deck that's Parallax Tide Stifle. And now like you're saying, oh, why don't we play Sapphire Medallion in this? This sounds like a hell of a gush foil free yeah, spell. No, I, I, like I it's probably see, um, Yeah, like once you're in the like bigger mana space, and you're like, because, again, Mox Diamond is the starting point. But when there's no land tax involved, you don't need your curve to stop at two. Because you want to play Mox Diamond and then play more mana sources and then draw more cards and play more lands and more Mox Diamonds. And just get to the point where you're like four mana up on your opponent because you haven't missed a land drop and you have four Mox Diamonds in play. So, um, wait, Sam. What if, what if to cast our flashback deep analysis, we gained 20 life? from a blue enchantment that that's a different two card combination i'm not interested in gaining 20 from a blue enchantment i'm open to gaining 20 from a white sorcery all right so here's wait hold on what's that card i'm too i'm too naive mike like a gerard's verdict i mean gerard's wisdom wisdom. yeah gerard's wisdom okay okay let me pull this uh, up for the zoomers so here's my thinking on this, right? This is the opposite of the direction you went uh, at Misty, which is like, okay, I played two different decks that are bad against Landstill, but like, you know, maybe their peanut butter and chocolate just drips enough across the bread that <laughs> I now have a good matchup, right? The way that I like the 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 place where I was thinking about, which is a, a Parallax Tide Dreadnought deck is, the, maybe the Dreadnought half is not very good against cards like Meddling Mage or a Landstill deck, right? But the Tide half is probably fantastic. <laughs> so it's like, against you, I'm the Tide half, and eventually I'm going to attack you twice when you have no permanence in play. But then against the naive red players, you're just like, eh, it's turn one. <laughs> How do you feel about a 12-12 with Days backup? <laughs> Can't be yeah. good. All right. Well, Sam, um, I have a plea. Uh, we have a $500 top prize for our September 16th you, New York tournament. 
New York. Yeah, I'm ruining mine too. If Sam shows up, I'm just going to do coverage. I'm not even going to play. Um, You're not going to pay the entrance fee. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to pay the entrance fee directly to Sam's pocket. But uh, you know, I implore you. I think $500 is will just barely scratch a plane ticket from Madison to New York City. Uh, we can probably cover your housing. Costs. We can put you the up. Actual, the- we want to see. Uh, you know, just just tell me that you'll think about it. Um, so it's the week before Vegas. I mean, sure. I thought your goal in life was to travel to Magic tournaments. His, I mean, <laughs> I his goal like, in life is you, for his Magic tournaments to cover my, his travel. It depends on to, my goal. My, my goal is to play Paper Magic. Yeah. There was a time when traveling to Magic tournaments was the most efficient way to do that. that yeah, now it's no longer the case. Um, yeah, because you've got it all right in your backyard at Missy Mountain. Um, like, uh, yeah, I mean, just tell me that you'll think about it. <laughs> Uh, I will, I, I guarantee you that I will at least uh, put it into a Google flight search. Yeah. So I think here's, <laughs> I'll here's, take it. No, no. Here's the, here's the whipped cream or whatever the vegetarian version of whipped cream is. On, on Sam, are you thing. vegetarian or vegan? Uh, vegetarian, no dairy. Okay. All right. So whatever the processed almond milk that Sam we have put oat, on. Oat whipped cream actually slaps. So. Oat, oat whipped cream that Sam's going to put on. Here it is, Sam. As everyone knows, Sam just tricks me into playing the tournament so that he can farm me. I will make the top eight of the tournament. So your like step, your step function to the five hundred prize is like literally you have a freebie in the top eight, right? Like, so, if I decide to go, I'm assuming that I have more freebies than that. <laughs> I mean, I'm a straight up freebie. I'll be a, I'm a freebie in the top eight. Yeah, I'm my, not a freebie in the Swiss. Yeah, your 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 true your only opponent might actually just be Osip Levadovich at that point. Because if he is, just make sure that you still give him fluctuator, and it doesn't sound like an issue. So here's the thing: Osip begged me for the replenish cards, but Lanny said he needed them for the PSS. So I said I can't give you replenish. I'm supposed to give these cards to Os uh, to to Lanny. And then, so he's just, so he, I gave him a few days. I was just like, tell me, I have like basically every deck built, right? Tell me what you want. And he's just like, ah, I'll just play Fluctuator again. But he wanted yeah. to play Replenish. Well, get, uh, Jeff, Jeff can hook him up with the Replenish so, and then Sam will show up with the Replenish beater. Uh, sounds like a, Sam does not need to tune. Sounds like the Sapphire medallion. He's not, he's not a Mike like, hunting lead. I'm going to have blue cards in my deck. Yeah. I don't think I'm going to have a bad Replenish mashup. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Sam, this has been delightful for me. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you know, uh, you know, go ahead and plug your stuff, and uh, you know, we'll sign off. All right. If there are any listeners left who have made it through this like rambling conversation about a million different constructed formats, none of which include pre-modern, who are also interested in limited, uh, <laughs> I, I have a limited podcast. Um, if you uh, like hearing my take on magic. Uh, the limited podcast is exclusively that I am the sole host. I never have any guests. I just talk about. <laughs> is it uh, shade? Am I, are we getting shaded? No, no. I <laughs> I think podcasts with I, I listen to podcasts that have multiple people. My podcast is designed with a very specific goal in mind, which is to give me a place to, as efficiently as I can, tell people how to draft a particular archetype each week. That's all it does. It's very straight and to the point uh i as a listener often prefer the uh you know more conversational um 
higher nonsense, more fun podcasts. But uh, for those, uh, you know, listener, the, the listeners that I tar- target with my pod- uh, podcast are, you know, limited tryhards who really want to just like learn how uh, they can, you know, win more gems. Matches. And so if that describes you and you've listened to all of this and you don't know about the podcast, so maybe that's somebody. Uh, check out drafting architects. I, look, it's non-zero. I guarantee you, it's non-zero. Uh, I have Sam Black Black to thank for my unlimited gem blank bankroll in uh, Magic Arena. I'm sure many other people do. Yeah, so definitely like check out. Yeah, <laughs> definitely check out drafting I, archetypes uh, and where you find stress, podcasts. I was a below average player. Could not three O an F and M. I became an invincible player. So like. <laughs> comical win rates like somebody's like oh what's your win rate 93 percent like shut up like here's the stats like oh really yeah never lose all i did was one one not even sam sent me a spreadsheet and then i asked him to send me another one for crimson vow and he wouldn't and so i had like a 47 percent crimson vow win rate but for midnight hunt yeah so 93 percent Unfortunately, this has nothing to do with my podcast whatsoever, and it's simply yeah. the power of a little help using 17 lands. <laughs> but I drafted more than one archetype. I drafted Black Red once because I opened Flurry, <laughs> but that was the one time. Right. Uh, Sam, I uh, can't wait to uh, see what you come up with next in this brand new world, uh, free modern. Uh, can't see, uh, you know, can't wait to see you continue cooking in CEDH. Maybe, uh, maybe one day, uh, you know, Mike and I will get hooked into that. Um, yeah. So on that note, I also write some articles. Uh, they get posted on Hipsters of the Coast uh, or Eminence, um, and some of those articles are about. Uh, CDH, but also some of them are about pre-modern, and also some of them are about whatever I feel like writing about at the time, uh, which could be really anything. Um, and uh, if you are interested in my thoughts on could be anything, uh, you could follow me on Twitter at Samuel H. Black, and if that is insufficient, Sam, for you, uh, you could also watch my stream on Twitch, uh, twitch.tv slash Samuel H. Black. And the Discord. You also have a YouTube channel. I watched you play Constructed. I do also have a YouTube channel. Uh, I should update it more than I do. It is largely uh, stream recaps, but every now and then I'm like, oh, I have like some ideas about some Constructed decks, and I don't want to play those on stream, so I guess I'll put them on YouTube. Uh, so I also have a YouTube, YouTube YouTube.com slash at Samuel H. Black. Uh, love it. Can't get enough. Uh, okay, well, this has been Michael J., Lanny Huang, and Sam Black. Thank you for listening uh, to an epic one. We'll put it at that. Love Spike Colony. That's our new sign-off. Love, love Spike Colony. Bye. Thanks okay. so much, Sam. You're very welcome. Thanks. Game over.